0: I'm Jamie Duggett, one of the pastors here this morning, and it's my pleasure to bring the Word of God to you this morning. But before I get into the passage, let me say a couple things to prepare us for it. Um, When I was a child, we used to have this thing called newspapers. I wonder if you remember them. I used to remember on Sunday morning going to get the newspaper and then trying to find the comics page. And my adversary in all this was the sports page. That was what was always keeping me from the comics page. So, you know, find the sports page, you know, rip it off and, you know, toss it over there, and you can read the comics. I haven't changed that much in respect to sports, by the way. Uh, The sports page is still kind of a dead letter to me. It's a bunch of names I don't know, a bunch of numbers that I don't know what they mean. But that doesn't mean that sports is inherently boring, If you know what's going on, if you understand the dramas and the uh, rivalries, if you understand what the numbers signify, then the sports page can be very interesting, so I'm told. Well, we're preaching from a genealogy today. A genealogy is a list of someone's family tree. Now, I'm going to guess that most of you are probably a little bit less excited about genealogies than the Jews of Jesus' day were. They probably seem to you a little bit like the sports section of the newspaper. There's a bunch of hard-to-pronounce names that I don't recognize. But just like the sports section of the newspaper, if we understand a little bit about how genealogies work and what they're saying— we discover that they can have very important messages. So that's what we're going to try to do here this morning. Um, A a couple more words then about genealogies before I read this. Matthew is going to call uh, this genealogy, um, well, he uses the same word as Genesis in the Greek translation of the book of Genesis. So if we can understand this genealogy, it's going to tell us about the Genesis of Jesus. Where did Jesus come from? How does that help us understand this new beginning that starts with Jesus? And so this is a great way to start our Advent season. Um, Let me say a little bit about how genealogies work. The main point to grasp is that these genealogies were highly creative compositions. They weren't just rote lists. They weren't even always about literal biological relationships. Sometimes they were a way to use family as a metaphor to understand human relationships. Let me just give you a couple examples of that. In 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, we meet a little boy named Samuel who goes to work in the tabernacle. Now, if you look at his genealogy at the beginning of 1 Samuel, it says that his parents are from the tribe of Ephraim. But if you turn to the book of 1 Chronicles and look at his genealogy there, the author has taken his whole genealogy and put it into the tribe of Levi. Different tribe, why? Well, it's because when Samuel is dedicated to the temple, it's like he's adopted into the tribe of Levi, and his descendants are going to continue to serve as Levites. Here's another example. Sometimes in the biblical genealogy, you'll see a name like the families of the scribes who live in Jabez, or even better, Valley of Craftsmen. Here's a question for you. Was there a dude walking around in ancient Israel named Valley of Craftsmen? Probably not. Probably this is a group of people who worked together as craftsmen and came to understand themselves as a family. And that's what the genealogy expresses. Okay, what's, what's the name, main point here? Well, it's that family in genealogies can be adoptive and it can be creative. And so all I want us to say is as we approach this genealogy, we should be prepared for Matthew to do some creative stuff to use the idea of a family tree to say something meaningful about who Jesus is in ways that aren't strictly literal and biological. So that's all just to prepare us for our passage this morning. So if you're turning your Bibles with me to Matthew 1, the very start of Matthew, and let's pay attention to the reading of God's Word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, And Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's ask God's help with our understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, help us to understand what message you may have for us in this list of Jesus' family. We pray that you would bless your word to our benefit, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, kids, I don't know how high you can count, but if you get bored at any point during the sermon, I have a job you can do. I want you to go through the genealogy and find just the main line, father and son, father and sons, and all the other people that are mentioned, and see if you can count how many names there are. That's just something to do if you get bored. We'll come back to that later. So as we look at this genealogy today, I want us to see three points. First point, Jesus sums up Israel's story. Second point, Jesus' story includes Gentiles and women. And third point, Jesus is adopted. So Jesus sums up Israel's story. Jesus' story includes Gentiles and women. And Jesus is adopted. So the first point. Jesus sums up Israel's story. Matthew starts his genealogy with Abraham, the wandering Aramean whom God called and promised to turn into a people. And from there, he's going to move to King David and the establishment of the kingship in Israel. Then from there, he's going to move to the exile when Israel's leaders were removed from the land. And then finally, he's going to bring the story down to the present day. In other words, the family tree of Jesus tells the whole story of Israel all the way up to Jesus. So I want to start first by going through the story of Israel as it is presented here. This is going to be a history of Israel, but a whirlwind tour. Are you ready? just don't have to get all the details, but we're going to get the major points. So here we go. We start with Abraham. God gives him a promise that his seed, his offspring, will be a great nation. Abraham lives his whole life looking forward by faith to this promise that God has given. And God begins his miraculous work through Abraham's son, Isaac, born in his old age. And from there, the promise goes from Isaac to Jacob, and then to Judah and his brothers. At this point, Matthew kind of zooms out by mentioning the brothers. Because he wants us to know that God has begun to build Abraham's children into a family, a community, a nation. So Judah and his brothers, they go down to Egypt for many years. And then they're brought out of Egyptian slavery by God's salvation through Moses. In case you're wondering where that is, that's Nashon. If you look him up in the Old Testament, you'll realize that... um, He is actually Aaron's brother-in-law, the same Aaron who's the brother of Moses. So that's the generation that comes up out of Egypt. After they come out of Egypt, God leads his people through the wilderness and gives them the land of Canaan through Joshua and his victories against the Canaanites. This is where Rahab comes on the scene. She's a Canaanite who sides with God's people and becomes a part of it. Then with Ruth and Boaz, we jump forward a couple hundred years They live in the time of the judges, the time when everybody in Israel did what was right in their own eyes because they didn't have a king. But a king is coming. Only a couple generations from Boaz we arrive at King David. And this is the first major pause point in the genealogy. Matthew sort of stops here at the end of the first 14 generations. And that's because David is a big deal. In David, God gives his people a king who will lead them. More than that and I think this is maybe even more important than David himself, he promises that David will always have a son to sit on the throne. This is where the title Son of David comes from. It stands for the hope of a God-given leader who's going to bring the people back to God and deliver them from their enemies. Solomon is the first son of David, but he's by no means the last. We have a list of kings here. Some of them are good kings. Some of them are very bad kings. Some of them are more mixed. But none of them are perfect. None of them really measures up to the whole fullness of what the son of David was supposed to be. So these kings, they have their ups and downs. But over time, the downs are worse than the ups. And so Judah and her kings become more and more faithless and corrupts. And finally, this ends with God sending Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian armies to carry the leaders, King Jeconiah and many of the people into exile in Babylon. Now, this is the second big place that Matthew pauses here the deportation or exile to Babylon. And again, he mentions the brothers of Jeconiah to let us know this isn't just an individual thing for the kings of Judah, this is something that involves the whole house of David. And it's a catastrophe for the whole people. It seemed like God had abandoned them. They had questions like, has God given up on this whole son of David thing? Our kings aren't here anymore. It seemed like the promise to David was just gone. But what happened? Well, we see it in the genealogy. Though they were in exile, God continued the Davidic line. And when the Persian king Cyrus conquered the Babylonians, he released God's people. And this guy named Zerubbabel, that's a fun one to say, Zerubbabel, he leads them back to the land. And in the years that follow, they rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. So God's people were restored to the land that God had promised to Abraham. But there's a problem. What about the promise to David? Zerubbabel was governor of Judah within the big Persian empire. He wasn't king. He never became king. Neither did any of his children become king. And you know, we don't know very much about the names that come next in the genealogy. While they waited and waited for God to raise up another son of David, empires rose and fell together with the fortunes of the little country of Judah, And all this time, generations of David's descendants have come and gone, waiting for the promised son of David who would deliver them. In verse 16, Matthew mentions that Jesus is called the Christ. That's a word we use a lot. I wonder if we all know what it means. No, it's not Jesus' last name. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And Messiah means anointed. Anointing was a picture of God's choice. And so the Messiah was the chosen one, the one who God had promised would come to deliver his people. That's who they're waiting for, the Christ. I think this is the point of the numbers Matthew gives us as well. Did you wonder about that? Like he makes this whole big deal about how many generations there are? Um, He says in verse 17, there's three sets of 14 generations. So um, the Jews in Jesus' day also like to play with numbers. So if you aren't so much into genealogies, don't worry, there's math in this sermon as well. What do the numbers mean? Well, one suggestion is, you know, this was before the time of Arabic numerals. So one of the ways to do numbers was you just use the alphabet You know, the A would be one, B would be two, C would be three, D would be four. And actually, if you do some math on David's name, which in Hebrew is three letters, the the D is four, the V is the sixth letter of the alphabet, and then D is four again, it adds up to 14. So that might be the point. It's just another way of driving home the importance of this son of David's. That the whole of Israel's history is structured around waiting for this son of David with this sort of fun, mathy way of referring to David's name. But there's another way to look at the numbers as well. We have three sets of 14. What's three times 14? Anybody working on their times tables? Have you got as high as 14 yet? Three times 14 is 42. 42. And what else is 42. Well, it's six times seven. I promise, we're getting somewhere with this. If you know that seven is the biblical number of completeness, then six sevens is right on the edge of completeness, headed into the seventh seven. Something similar happens in Daniel 9, where there's a set of sevens, and once you get to the last seven, God's endgame begins. So, that might also be something Matthew is saying with these numbers. We are on the edge of the fullness of time. The time has finally come for God's end game to begin. All of that waiting is finally going to receive its fulfillment. It's finally time for the long expected son of David to appear. Let me just stop at this point. I don't know if you're into genealogies or math, but. I want you to try to imagine the excitement of one of Matthew's contemporaries, of a Jewish person who's been reading their Old Testament and waiting for the Messiah to come. Can you capture a little bit of that sense of like, yes, this is the time. The story of your whole people has been building up to this, and now Matthew is telling you it's here. I hope you can at least sense a little of that excitement, even if you don't express it through maths. So that's point one. Jesus sums up Israel's story. But point number two, Jesus' story includes Gentiles and women. You know, it's somewhat conventional for a genealogy simply to be a list of men. Matthew could have written his genealogy that way, could have been all of the powerful and important male descendants since Abraham a list of insiders but instead Matthew keeps interrupting the chain of native born men with Gentiles people who are outside the kingdom of Israel and women Tamar, Rahab and Ruth were all non-Israelite women who became part of God's people then we have Bathsheba Solomon's mother she was an Israelite but her husband Uriah was a Gentile And now here's the point where I ask you, did anybody count the names? I wonder what number you came up with. Just going father, son, father, son. I'll tell you the number I came up with. There are 40 men listed leading into Jesus' male line. But I thought Matthew said 14 times 3, that equals 42. Why are there only 40 men? Well, we could include Jesus in the number, then we would have 41, but we're still missing. We're still missing someone. And um, I think it's especially weird when you realize that Matthew actually skips some of the kings. This is part of that creativity of biblical genealogy. He skips like three kings uh, in the early part of this genealogy. So presumably he could have stuck one of them in to get that number, but he chooses not to. Why do you think that Matthew does that? I think, I'll just tell you what I think, that Matthew is portraying the male line as incomplete. It can't come up to the full number. And in doing that, he's inviting us to think about the people who've been left out, the people we might normally forget in the story. It's like a mystery. Who is the 42nd person? I mean, should, it, should I say it's Uriah or, or Tamar or, or maybe it's Mary? Um, or, you know, maybe it's all of them in, in some sort of way. But why are these people important to Matthew? Why does does he pick the ones that he does? Let's, Let's start with the Gentiles. We said in the last point that Jesus sums up Israel's story. And Matthew, he goes back to Abraham, the start of Israel's story. But if you know the story of Abraham, right there at the beginning, when God gives the very first promise to Abraham, he says, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. You see, the story of Abraham, the story of David, the story of Israel, was never just for Israel. It was always part of God's plan to redeem the whole world. And so there's foreshadowed in Jesus' own family, his genealogy, the presence of these Gentiles, these people that come from outside the kingdom and are brought into it. You know, even Uriah, it's almost like he's in the genealogy. It's kind of hard to get this in English, but Matthew phrased it in a weird way. If we translate verse six literally, it could be something like, "David begat Solomon from her of Uriah." And by framing it in this weird way, it almost makes it sound like Uriah is part of Jesus' family tree. So I think the point is, the Gentiles are included. What about the women? Ancient genealogies often didn't list women, although if you know some basic biology, you know that it's hard to get a genealogy without any women. If you just have a bunch of men, you don't even get one more generation, right? But Matthew hasn't just included these women because they give birth or are mothers. If he wanted to do that, there are other women he could have picked. Rather, he's specifically chosen women who act in bold ways that preserve the line of promise, Often in the context of male failure. Let's talk a little bit about these women, shall we? Uh, First is Tamar. That's Genesis 38, one of my favorite Bible stories. You can go read it later. I won't get into all the weirdness of it. But essentially, Tamar was left as a childless widow of one of Judah's children because Judah neglects her and doesn't do what the law requires in providing her with the brother as a husband. So how does Tamar respond? Well, she tricks Judah into getting her pregnant. Okay, the means here are kind of shady. I'm not not saying that we're meant to approve of how she goes about it, but by the end of the story, Judah himself says that she is more righteous than him. Her trick enabled the line of promise to continue when he was the one neglecting and hindering that from happening. So without Tamar's trick, we don't get Jesus. Next, we have Rahab. Though she was a Canaanite, inhabitant of Jericho, she believed in the power of Israel's God, and so she risks her life to hide these Israelite spies that Joshua sends out. As a result, she and her whole family are delivered from the destruction of Jericho, and they become a part of God's people, and one of of Jesus' ancestors. So, without Rahab's bravery, you don't get Jesus. Next, we have Ruth. After Ruth's husband died, she had the opportunity to ditch her mother-in-law. But instead, she devotes herself to caring for a pretty bitter woman, diligently working to provide for her. Then she boldly demands this guy named Boaz act as her kinsman-redeemer and marry her and care for them. I mean, don't get me wrong, Boaz is great, but it takes Ruth's prompting to push him into action. Through her bold action, a new child comes to this childless family, and the promise continues to a new generation. So without Ruth's fortitude and boldness, we don't get Jesus. Finally, we have Uriah and Bathsheba. And this is definitely the hardest story. David's failure and sin and injustice here is one of the darkest moments in Israel's history, where he takes another man's wife and has him killed to cover it up. And not just any man, but one who risked his life to make David king, one of his most loyal followers. And you know, unlike these other women, Bathsheba doesn't have any agency in that story. Uriah is able to resist David, ultimately is futile, but Bathsheba is not. But I think it's important to remember, and I think we forget too often, that this isn't actually the end of Bathsheba's story. She shows up again later, and the place she shows up is, well, when David is old and senile, and Solomon is still young and soft, and it's this incredibly dangerous moment for Israel where some of Solomon's brothers are conspiring to shed blood and steal the throne, and David's too weak to do anything about it. Who steps up? It's Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet, and together they're the ones who go to David, and they manage everything, and make sure that Solomon is crowned king and made secure in his position. Without Bathsheba, Solomon probably gets executed in a coup before he even gets a chance to be king. So for Bathsheba as well, we can say that without her bold actions, you don't get Jesus. So it really is true that all these women act in some way which preserves the line of promise, and that's why I think they're here. You know, there's something else people often point out about this passage, which is that there's also an air of sexual impropriety attached to all these women, too. Tamar, for obvious reasons, Rahab, because her former profession had been as a prostitute, Ruth really through no fault of her own, but just because people in the story keep stereotyping her as a Moabiteess; and then Bathsheba because of what David does to her. And I think this probably is intentional, too. After all, Matthew is going to go straight from this genealogy into a story about Mary and the questions of impropriety that hang over her pregnancy and what's Joseph going to do about it. That's going to be the next story. Um, But notice that with Mary, the shadow on her character is quite unfair, so, I don't want to center this too much. Yes, all of these women may have endured shame for the things they did or were done to them or were assumed about them. But the point is their faithfulness to carry on the line of promise. Again, without their actions, we don't get Jesus. Let me pause for a moment and ask a question Do you feel like Jesus came for you? Do you feel like Jesus came for people like you? This genealogy tells us something about Jesus. That his story is not just about the movers and shakers. Not just about the insiders. Not just about the powerful. His story is also about outsiders. God worked through Gentiles and women to bring Jesus into the world. And he came for them as well. And as the story of Jesus unfolds in the Gospels, we see him with all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, religious experts and notorious sinners, they're all invited into his kingdom. All of them learn that they're sinners in need of forgiveness and are forgiven and loved by him and given an opportunity to serve within that kingdom. So whether you are an insider, someone who's grown up in the church and feels very comfortable, or whether you feel like an outsider, like you're not the kind of person who really belongs in church, Jesus came for you. He's your Messiah. And through faith in him, you can be part of his story. Okay, so that was point number two. Jesus' story includes Gentiles and women. Point number three, Jesus is adopted. Jesus is adopted. I mean, what a curveball ending to this genealogy. I mean, did you see it coming? I mean, maybe only because you've read it before and it doesn't seem strange to you, but verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So we get through this whole genealogy. We get all the way to Joseph and then, you know, he doesn't begat anyone. Uh, Instead, his identity is defined in terms of a woman. He's the husband of Mary. That's his claim to fame. And Mary is the one from whom Jesus was born. You know, the translations, it's really hard to get this in English, but the uh, ESV translates this as was the father of, whereas versus was born. This is the same verb, only an active form of the verb, you know, begat, 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 versus a passive form, was begotten. So you have, you know, such and such man begat so and so from such and such woman, But then we have Jesus was begotten from Mary. The from so-and-so has become detached from any man or what any man is doing. Um, There's just no man doing the beginning here. And Mary sums up all the women of faith Matthew includes here. The arrival of the Messiah is something that God does through her alone. Among other things, this is, of course, a reference to the virgin birth, which we'll hear more about in coming weeks One of the great miracles of the Christian faith. All the way back in Genesis 3.16, we'd heard that it would be through the seed of the woman that humankind would be delivered from the effects of Adam's fall and sin. And Matthew's highlighted the contributions of women in his genealogy, but now this theme comes to its ultimate fulfillment in the birth of Christ through Mary. And by the way, this means that Joseph is Jesus' stepdad. He's his adoptive father. I think that's going to be important to keep in mind for where the story goes. You know, Matthew really follows Joseph's perspective. Luke follows Mary's perspective by and large. And Matthew, though, we're going to see how is Joseph going to react to Mary's pregnancy? How is Joseph going to respond to the calling God's given him to care for and parent this child? And it's kind of the culmination of all of those little adoptions in biblical genealogies that you notice. Um, And I'll say, just because Joseph's not Jesus' biological father doesn't mean he's not a father to him. Definitely has a real father-child relationship. But that's for later sermons to get into more. For this point, I want to focus on what does it mean that God chooses to do it this way? Because if from one perspective, this genealogy says that Joseph is called to adopt Jesus... From another perspective, Jesus' birth is God reaffirming his free choice to be born into David's line. Uh, Jesus is not born by the will of the flesh or the will of man, as the Apostle John might say. Jesus' birth isn't something that human beings make happen. It's not just a natural social evolution. Even a social evolution in a believing uh, God-centered society, it's none of those things. When Jesus is born, God makes a choice. He does a miracle. He breaks in from the outside. It's the same way when we're born anew in Him. It's not by human will, but by the will of God. God breaks in. He does something marvelous and miraculous which we can't easily comprehend or explain. Yes, this is the culmination of the long story of God's people, sometimes faithfully obeying God. Other times, God's faithful perseverance with them in their failures. But it's also the start of something new, a new creation. So, what does that mean for us here at the start of Advent season? It means that in Christ, God has made a way for us which is perfectly free and gracious. It isn't based on our works, it isn't based on what we can make happen. We can't make it happen. Rather, God did something miraculous in Christ. He showed us a goodness which is strange, and alien that happens outside of us. God himself became man, was born of a woman, grew up, lived and died for us, was raised from the dead for us. This is a story that we are invited into, We're given the privilege of serving in this new kingdom with this new king who's so much better than David or any son of David who came before him. In this kingdom, we're called to renewed lives of love and good works, it's true, but ultimately this will be a story not about what we do, but about God's faithfulness. The faithfulness of a God who was dedicated to fulfilling his promise with Abraham, both when Abraham's children were faithful and also when they were not and when they failed. So as we begin Advent, this calls us to an expectant faith in Christ. And we're, in, we're introduced again every year to the Savior who was born in Bethlehem. And we can ask ourselves, do we believe that in this child, God was working to save the world? That he came and died for our sins? if we've placed our faith in Jesus, we are adopted into his family. That's maybe the real surprise twist here at the end. We become part of the people of God, whoever we may be. We're God's sons and daughters, and Jesus is our big brother. We can know God's love is the unconditional love of a father, not based on who we are or what we have done, but based purely on the fact that he loved us and has made us part of our family. That's the Big surprise twist at the end of this genealogy is that we get to be part of it as well. We get invited into Jesus' family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth about who Jesus is, that you sent your Son. Born of a woman, born under the law, born to live a human life for us. What a great mystery this is that we can't comprehend. But we thank you that it is true and we pray that you would help us to believe in it and trust in your son more this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.